Good morning, church family. This morning's passage will be Psalm 149. And I'm excited to, to preach this passage this morning because unlike the, the two psalms around it, Psalm 40, 149 is a little bit on the awkward side. You know, if you're reading through the Bible or you're reading through the psalms as part of a reading plan, Psalm 148, Psalm 150 both have a fairly steady cadence of praising God and worshiping God and kind of bringing the book to a close. And then right between them is Psalm 149, and it's a little bit awkward and a little more violent than you'd expect. So it kind of sticks out a little bit. Um, so it, it might be easy to just kind of breeze past it and move on to Psalm 150, because 150 is a lot easier psalm to read. Um, but I want to take some time and dig into this kind of awkward psalm that's in between these two other psalms of praise and worship that are closing out the book, and, and talk about worship and what worship is and what worship looks like and what our posture in worship is. Um, so this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 149, and what I hope that you'll see is that worship is a lifestyle that leads to action. So join with me in reading Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adores the humble with salvation. Let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and the two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations, to punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them judgment written. This is honor for all the godly ones. Praise the Lord. So you can see there that the song takes a, an interesting cadence, first talking about worshiping God and then worshiping God in your bed and then dancing and then wielding a two-handed sword. So we'll be going through this and looking, and what I, what I want you to see is that we're called to, to worship God first with music, and then physically and, and excitedly having a, a physical kind of a component to how we approach worship and our posture in worship, and then seeing that worship inspires us to action, to go forth. Worship is not something that we do just in one place. So kind of starting here at the beginning with verse 1, we see the call, Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, if you were here last week, we preached another psalm that started exactly the same, Psalm 98. And to quickly recap, when the Bible says, sing a new song, this doesn't mean that every time somebody leads worship, Christian has to write entirely brand new music for us. It's not a call that we have to constantly have new music every Sunday, and it's got to be new and fresh every time. We know this isn't true because they sang the psalms over and over again. Um, so what this is a call to is that when we think about how we gather and worship God, it is a new expression every time of worship. So singing a new song means that we all join our voices together, we sing, we sing different arrangements, and sometimes we do sing new songs, but it's a new, fresh expression of what God is doing in our lives. God is moving, God is acting, God is faithful to us in salvation and sustaining us through life's trials. And so when we come together to sing, it is a fresh expression of what God is doing. We're not uh, you know, chanting and just going through the ritual like some other religions do. There's a fresh living aspect to our worship and the way we approach, uh, approach the way we sing. So when we sing and we gather to worship and sing, it, it is a fresh, new expression. So that's what he means here by saying a worshiping God with a new song. Now, I want to talk for a moment about this word worship. The word worship doesn't just refer to the singing. Singing worship music and 
Worshiping through singing is a part of worship. But what worship is, when we talk about worship, is worship is a lifestyle. Worship is the posture of your life. It's how you're living before God. So when you think about what does your life revolve around, what is, you know, what is it that you give honor to? You see the word honor in this, in this psalm. What is, what is it that we're putting priority in our lives? That's what we worship. And it's important that we ask this question because every person in this room is worshiping something. There is something in your life that you put as the top priority, and that's what you're worshiping. And hopefully you know what that is, and you're doing it intentionally, and yes, this is the thing that I'm worshiping. I'm, I'm worshiping God. My life is built around growing spiritually and living with others and being in community and, and having a healthy relationship with God and, and, having, and his relationship with me. Um, but maybe if you're not paying attention, and we often see this, and it, it happens to all of us, it, it's so easy for our lives to start revolving around our careers or our school or our family or, you know, just getting the next thing on the checklist done and for that object of worship to shift to something else. So when we see passages like this, it's important for us to start asking these questions. What is it we worship? And we see two places of worship in this psalm. The first one we see here is in verse... Uh, verse 1, actually, and it says, in the assembly of the godly. So what do you come together? When you assemble yourselves with others, what are you assembling yourselves to worship? Now, obviously, all of us here, we're assembled to worship God right now. But when you get together with your friends, when you get together with other people, what is it you're gathering to worship, to celebrate, to prioritize? You know, if, if every time, you know, you're excited to get together with your friends so you can go to the bar, or go to the movies, or go play a game, or whatever it is, you know, that becomes, in a sense, a sense of worship to you. you know, we are creatures designed to worship God. And we can ask ourselves, when, when, when we're in the assembly of, of, our, of our people, you know, our squad, our friends, however you want to describe your circle, you know, what is it that your group is about? What is it that you're worshiping? You know, can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Is there an excitement in your life for gathering with God's people? You know, is, is that a genuine excitement? And I, I try to have this conversation with my daughters. You know, I, I'll tell Ember, tomorrow, on, I'll tell her on Saturday night, tomorrow we're going to go to church and we're going to see our church friends and we're going to worship God. Are you excited to go to church tomorrow? And she's like, yes, there will be toys because she's going to the nursery. But, you know, even just still trying to instill into her, even as a little two-year-old, there's a, there's a joy that dad and mom have to going and being with God's people. This is an exciting part of the week, not something we're trying to check off so we can, you know, have our afternoon plans and make this be something that's important to our family. And we see this, too. When it says here that they worship God on their beds, let them sing for joy on their beds. When we think of bedrooms, usually everybody kind of gets their own bedrooms, maybe a couple siblings share, and then, you know, husband and wife. But we kind of split people up in bedrooms. In ancient cultures, in a lot of cultures, everybody slept in the same room. So when it says worship them on their beds, it's referring to the whole family. That's referring to family worship. You know, what is the thing that the whole family's worshiping? Because oftentimes in their culture, the bedroom also had grandma and grandpa's bed, maybe an uncle's bed, you're all of the kids, everybody would be in the same room. So if you're worshiping in your beds, you're worshiping with your whole family. And, you know, the servants are gone, the customers are gone, all the other people in your life are gone. What is it your family is worshiping? Because it's easy to worship God, you know, on, a, on the Sabbath for them or on a Sunday for us for a few hours in front of other people. But when it's just your family 
by themselves. What is it your family is worshiping? Because I said a moment ago that every person is worshiping something. Every family is also worshiping something as well. And you're either aware of it or you're not aware of it. And it's something that none of us, again, do perfectly, but something to think through. What is it that our household is worshiping? This is a question we can ask ourselves. Is my family revolving around stuff? Is it all about how much money we can make, how many things we can have, all of the possessions we have? And, you know, we've got to keep them clean and fixed and nice and everything's got to be perfect. Or is it I've, we've got to make that hustle and we've got to have another side job and another secondary income or a passive income and we've got to get as much money as a family as possible and everybody needs to be working, working, working all the time. Or maybe your family is revolving around convenience. How can we make everything in this house easy? You know, how do we make everything fast and quick and easy and efficient and efficient and efficient and streamline, streamline, and that becomes a god in your family? Or maybe, maybe it's even something more insidious than this. And this is something that, you know, as, as a husband and a father, I have to ask myself, is there a person in the family that we've begun to revolve around? You know, when you start having young kids in your family, is, is our family life now revolving around the kids? Do we wake up and go to bed and everything in between is all about how we can help our kids succeed? It's a good and right thing as a parent to want your kids to succeed. But if your life revolves around worshiping them and making them the center of attention and making them almost an idol, that's not going to be good for them and it's definitely not going to be good for you or anybody's soul. You know, or... You know, as, as a husband, we have to ask, as a husband, I have to ask the question, or as a wife, you may have to ask the question, am I making my, our marriage or our household revolve around myself? You know, when dad gets home, does it have to be his way? Does it have to be the food I want and the chair I want and the show I want and everything that happens this evening has to be exactly my way or I'm not happy and I'm going to make sure my family knows I'm not happy? Or a wife who says, you know, I've, the house needs to be clean, and if the dishes are wrong, or this is wrong, or it's not dusted or vacuumed, or whatever it is, I'm not going to be happy. Or maybe, you know, it's you and your roommates, and, you know, I want the house to look like this, and you want the house to look like that, and it's a kind of an idol war going on of my way versus your way, and you have strife because of that. There's lots of different scenarios that can play out, but in every one of those scenarios, we have to ask the question, What's the idol here? What's the, the object of worship? Are we worshiping ourselves? Are we worshiping things? Or is God at the center? Because when we put God at the center and we say, well, what has Jesus done for us? How has he saved us and lived for us and forgiven of us of our sins? And when you make that the center, that frees you up to not make it about yourself or not make it about all these things. And when things go wrong and convenience is threatened, and the schedule doesn't go the way you want, and your life is kind of thrown around, that doesn't shake you so much. And you realize, look, I still have my relationship with Christ. I can still find joy in Jesus, even as things around me go completely chaotic. And, and this, is, this is a very real conversation that you have to have. I had this last night happen to me, where you have to look and see, here's what, you know, here's what my plans were, but here's what God is doing. And when you come to those positions, you'll just look, God is good, he has saved me, he has rescued me. I have everything I need, so I don't have to be worried or afraid. And then that frees you to forgive a spouse or a child who isn't doing exactly what you want. And you have the ability to love and serve and care for others. And it's a wonderful freeing experience when we put the object of worship on God instead of idolizing something in our own lives. So we see this picture then of worship being something that, that is our posture and how we kind of approach things, both in the public square, in the assembly, and in our beds, in kind of our own private lives and our family's lives. So the second thing I want to see now 
is verse 3. Let's start talking about some of the more awkward verses here. So verse 3, our first awkward verse. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. So let's talk about dancing. Everybody's favorite topic, I'm sure, in a Baptist church. So what does this passage tell us when it says to praise God with dancing? Now, this is not a command we know in the New Testament as a piece of the worship service. This isn't like, okay, we need to have a dancing portion of our worship service. That's not what this is commanding. And this is also not referring to any modern expression of dance. This is not a command for ballet or hip-hop or whatever you've seen in a music video recently. It's not talking about that kind of dancing either. But what dancing more or less is, is dancing is cultural expression. It's a, it's a way to culturally express, express emotion. So we have to ask the question, just like we did last week on what did music look like for the first century church, what were they referring to by these terms? Let's ask the question, what would the Israelites think when they heard the word dance? And we see this, a good example of what they would think in Exodus 15, 20, and 21. In Exodus 15, God has just defeated um, the Pharaoh and his army of chariots at the Red Sea. So God wins this miraculous battle for the Israelites. They were pretty, pretty sure they were about to have a last stand and all die heroically. And then all of a sudden, God uh, restarts the Red Sea and wipes out all of the Egyptians. And the Israelites are all standing there ready to have this big battle. And then all of a sudden, they don't have to fight now. All the soldiers survived. They didn't even have to draw swords. God has saved them miraculously. And what we, what we see in um, Exodus 15 here, in verse 20 and 21, it says this. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the woman, women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider have been thrown in the sea. And they throw a party. God has saved them from certain death. They were about to be run down by chariots, and God has miraculously wiped out the chariots, and they are rescued and saved. So their first thought is, let's dance and party and celebrate what God has done. And there's this moment of celebration. So when, when the psalmist is referencing the timbrel and the dance, he's referencing these Old Testament celebrations of what God is doing. And we can take from this that when we see God working in miraculous ways, we're called to celebrate that. I remember many years ago as a child, in the church we were at, there was a, a church member who was very sick and very ill, and the doctor said that there was no hope, and we prayed and God healed them, and we were all excited. Here was a miraculous healing. So we had a cake and we had a party after church one service and said, let's celebrate what God has done. And then another time I remember, a man came to our church and said, 18 years ago, I was excommunicated. I walked away from the faith. I was done with Christianity. And God has opened my eyes to my, my, my mistakes. And I want to repent and I want to be restored. And it had been 18 years. Almost nobody even remembered this guy. And yet he came in humbly wanting to be restored into the church. And, you know, we, we went through the, the Congregationalist, we voted him in as a member, and then we had a cake, and we had a party, and we celebrated because the lost sheep had come home. God had worked in a situation where maybe so many people had already probably given up on this man, and yet God brought him back. God worked miraculously, just as he promises in the scriptures. So we can have celebration, we can have joy and excitement when we see God working, when God saves an unreached people group, when God heals somebody who the doctors say are unhealable, when, when God brings back a lost sheep or saves somebody, that can, that's a moment of joy for us, and we have the opportunity to celebrate that kind of stuff. And 
our cultural celebration, of course, is going to look different than an ancient Egypt or each ancient Hebrew celebration, of course. But at the same time, we have opportunity to celebrate what God's doing. But the other thing I want to take away from this passage on praising God with a dance, I want to tie this into something that I was talking about last week as well. You see, we, I said last week that worship and worship music begins with truth. It begins with the lyrics, the words. We're thinking about these powerful things that God has done. So we sing, holy, 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 or a mighty fortress is our God, or amazing grace, how sweet the sound. All these wonderful hymns, these wonderful truths that we're singing to ourselves and each other and praising God with. So we have kind of this academic understanding, a head knowledge of what God's doing for us. And I said last week that that should transcend into our hearts. We should have an emotional reaction to that. And we should be emotionally excited when we think about Jesus dying for us, our sins being forgiven, us being made right with God. That should emotionally stir us. And if you're emotionally stirred, there's going to be some kind of physical response to that as well. You know, if you've ever been to a Super Bowl party and there's a touchdown and everybody jumps off the couch and gets excited, or everybody cheers at the end of the movie, or, you know, when, when something exciting happens, you want to jump up and down sometimes. You want to have a physical response. You might notice I talk with my hands a lot. When I get excited, my hands are up. So when I'm singing praise before God, if you notice, you happen to be looking at me while I'm singing for some reason, my hands are up. I praise God and I worship like this because if you and I were just having a conversation, and I was telling you about amazing grace, how sweet the sound. This is how I'd be talking to you. I wouldn't be talking to you, amazing grace. It's pretty awesome, you know. You know, or I wouldn't be checking my phone. If I'm excited about what God's done in my life, I'm going to be a little bit more animated about that. So when I'm singing and praising God, I'm a little bit more animated. And also, I have a musical, musical background, and I can tell you from a technical level, if you sing with your hands up and your chest up, you can breathe a little bit easier and you can sing a little bit better. If you sing like this... It's hard to make it all the way through the line. But if you sing with joy and expression, it's a lot easier to sing and to sing loudly and to, to praise God and really think easier about the lyrics. So there's, there's a call to some movement and to some, some action, some motion in worship. And it's not a call to you know, wave your arms and jump up and down, because if you do that, then the person behind you is not going to be able to see the words. So maybe not distracting and maybe not in a way that that is calling attention to yourself. We're, we're still trying to make this about God, of course. But at the same time, having the, the freedom to raise your hands, having the freedom to cry a little bit or to kneel down or whatever it is that is your expression in worship where it's honest and genuine and, and feeling the words affecting your heart, there is a right and healthy way to experience that. And you don't want to go into every worship service trying to generate an emotional hike because that's what you're here for. You're here to experience the truths that we have in God. And if that has an emotional response, there are certain songs, like I said last week, that make me tear up a little bit. And that's fine, and that's good, and that's healthy. And we should not be afraid to have that kind of relationship with God's music. We're not trying to be stoics here. Uh, Damien talks uh, a little bit this morning in Sunday school about how you know, Christianity is not a call to stoic joy. It's a call to authentic experiential joy of what God has done for us. And at the same time, too, worship is very much a witness to the people around us. You know, if somebody walks in the side door that we have here for the first time and sees us all singing a, a wonderful hymn and nobody looks at even the, the slight bit, you know, excited about it, what does that say about our faith? What does that say about what we believe? It's, it's a testimony to each other. It's a testimony to people around us, visitors who come among us, that we're excited genuinely by the lyrics that we're singing, that we love the truths that we have. We love the Bible that we've been given. 
So when we see this call to dancing, it's not a call to you know, jump up and down and be crazy, but it's instead it's a call to, to authentically experience the truths that God's have give, God has given us. And whether you, you sing with your hands up or you're not comfortable and you sing with your hands down, my hope is that you're, you're engaging with the lyrics and engaging with what you're saying, what's coming out of your mouth, and that that has an effect on your heart. And every person's going to have a different way of expressing that. But, but, consider, but consider what is going into your head and into your heart and, and consider how important these words are to you. Worship should be a healthy emotional experience. So if, if that's what this text is talking about in terms of dance, in terms of kind of physical expression of worship, so we have the, the, the musical expression of worship, this, this kind of physical have, having that openness in worship. Now we come to verses 6 through 9, or as I like to say, what's up with the sword? So now we have these sword passages. Let the high praise of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Now, I thought about bringing my, one of my swords in. I have swords. I like swords. Um, I am a sword guy, or I was before I got married. Now I have to pay for diapers and baby stuff. Um, but as a single man, I, used to, I collected a couple swords because I enjoy swords. Um, but this isn't a call to wear a sword into the pulpit or wear a sword into the, into the worship service. But, but what, is, what is this verse meaning here? You know, we, I don't want to just write this off and say this is a weird Old Testament thing. We don't have to think about it anymore. I want to spend some time thinking about what is the significance of this two-edged sword? Because the two-edged sword comes back over and over and over again in Scripture. And there's a really neat pattern. And I want to show you because it goes all the way from Genesis to Revelations. And there's this gradual revealing and understanding of what God is talking about when he talks about the two-edged sword. So I want to take a few minutes this morning and talk through what that is. Now, when the Bible talks about a sword or a two-edged sword, it can be used in different ways. Sometimes it's just historical account. So this guy was wearing a sword. Not every mention of a sword in the Bible is a metaphor for something. Sometimes it's just a guy wearing a sword. But oftentimes it's used as a metaphor for the tongue. So the, the, the tongue can cut like a sword. That's several times in Scripture. Um, so that's a, that's a very common metaphor. Sometimes you see the sword went out against the Philistines as a way to say, we declared war on the Philistines. Pretty much every military leader, king, ruler in ancient times, in pretty much every culture, had a sword or some kind of weapon that was their symbol of power. The sword was almost a universal symbol of, I'm the king, and I have the ability to, to declare war on other nations, and I have the ability to have life and death in my control. So this is, a, this is a symbol that was very well understood in the ancient world when they talked about the sword. So this, this kind of begins to tie into what this metaphor is. So look with me, if you think first mention of a sword in the Bible. It's actually one of the first pieces of technology in the Bible. In Genesis 3:24, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, an angel is placed at the garden holding a sword that is on a flaming sword. Now, fire is probably the other major metaphor in the Bible for God's presence. We see the flaming sword, we see the burning bush, we see the tongues of fire at Pentecost, the flaming chariots. Over and over again, God uses fire to represent, this is my, this is my presence. We see tongues of fire in the throne room in Revelations, another metaphor that kind of carries through. But we see here the sword being representative of God's judgment. God says, I am judging man, you have sinned in the garden, and the sword represents that you are no longer allowed in here. This is, a, this is something that you have been cut off from. The sword cuts you off of being able to access garden, to access the Garden of Eden. So that's this first reference of the sword. 
Look with me, if you would, at Ezekiel 21, 3 through 5. We don't have time to go through every passage, but I want to give you a couple here to, to give you kind of a picture of how this unfolds. So Ezekiel 21, 3 through 5. And say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you and I will draw my sword from its sheath and I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Therefore, my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. And all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. And this is an important verse because what we see is that God has spared the nations up until now. God has been patient with Israel as they have broken his covenant over and over again. And as you read the prophets, one of the major themes in both the major and the minor prophets is that the nations around Israel have gone into sin that is worse and worse and worse. Um, Alcohol and drunkenness, there's mass amounts of prostitution, assault, child sacrifice was just prevalent in the region and sin was growing and increasing in the region. And we see, and, and instead of Israel being a light to the nations and talking about hope and peace, instead Israel and the, the nation of God, the chosen people, were embracing all these sinful cultures and sinful idol worship in the nation of Israel. So when he says, I'm drawing my sword now against the righteous and the unrighteous, that's what he's talking about. His chosen people have fallen into sin, and now the judgment has come upon them and on the nations. And this is a theme that begins to repeat. And we begin to see that the sword represents the law of God. This is God's law having been broken and now being turned in judgment on the nations. And there's a scariness to this sword of God's judgment is coming against us. But the metaphor doesn't stop there. Look with me, if you would, at Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Almost to the end of the Old Testament, we see this metaphor start to shift a little bit. And remember, the sword is two-edged. There's something else going on here. So listen, listen closely to this one. Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third in the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So this sword of judgment that's coming against both the nation of Israel and all the nations around them, this sword of judgment that is about to come down and destroy all of, the, all of, the, all of humanity, you know, we're doomed, the sword of God is coming, there's no way we can stop it. Who does the sword strike? Who does the sword hit? The shepherd. It doesn't come down entirely on the nations. Instead, the shepherd who stands beside the Lord. Who is the shepherd who takes the judgment of God and spares his people? It's Jesus. And here we see that that the sword is not just judgment coming and there's no hope, but instead the shepherd himself has taken the sword blow. And instead of us being destroyed, it says we will be tested and refined as f- by fire, like silver and gold, to be made back into God's people. And this is almost like the other edge of the sword. The sword is being used both as judgment, but it's also being used on Jesus, our Savior, to pay for our restoration. And we see the sword not just as a picture of the law, 
But here in, in Zechariah, the prophecy of the coming gospel, that, that God's judgment will be poured out on the, on the nations who do not repent, but for those who repent, for those who are protected by the shepherd, he, he, the sword is taken. And this sword is used both for judgment and for rescue. And this is the other edge of it. We have the rescue edge of the sword, the sword that redeems us, that protects us. So we, we see this metaphor start to shift. And instead of just being a message of judgment, it is now a message of rescue and redemption and that the sword has come down on the shepherd and not on us. So we have this wonderful picture. And then we begin to move into the Old Testament and the metaphor gets even stronger. You, you probably know and might be guessing where I'm going here because in Ephesians 6, 17, when we're given the armor of God, what else are we given? The sword. We're given the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What does the word of God contain? The law and the gospel, the two edges of this sword. So we are given the truth. We are given the sword that is wielded by God and by Jesus. Our sword, our Bible, is a copy of God's law and God's gospel and everything in there that is contained. Our Bible has the law that is sufficient to, to damn us to hell and the gospel that gives us the hope that we have in salvation and rescue. Everything we need to be rescued to have a relationship with Jesus is found in the Bible. We have the full ability to be rescued by God in the Bible and we're given this amazing sword, this sword made by God that we are now called to wield. And listen to Hebrew 4.12 as it talks about the sword again. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul of spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all is naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And here we see that the sword of God, what we have been gifted, the gift we have in having the Bible is more powerful than, than any human weapon, than any human technology. We have here the ability to have our souls saved by trusting in Jesus, to know the gospel, to know the, the shepherd who was slain so that we can be saved. We have here the greatest gift possible. We have been gifted this sword. Now, I said that the sword also appears from Genesis to Revelation. So let's look at the last reference of this sword. And we're, we're going here very quickly. There's lots more verses on this. You can spend a lot of time studying how, how God gradually reveals both the law and the gospel throughout all of scriptures. Um, but look with me at Revelation 19.15. This is the final battle where Jesus rides out on the white horse. And it's, he's described in verse 15 like this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress a fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when Jesus as a shepherd is struck down, he doesn't stay struck down. He has come back. He has now taken the sword that struck him down, and he is wielding it in judgment against the nations and rescue for his people. And we can look at this sword, the sword of Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus that we have been given, and see both judgment and rescue and know that this is what we have been given. This is the truths that we have in scriptures. So as we kind of think about this and unpack this, you know, um, different kingdoms throughout out history, when they try to raise up an army, you have really kind of two options. You either build up a rabble and you say, hey, we need soldiers, send me 20 men, tell them to bring their own weapons, and they beat their plows into swords, and you kind of have this ragtag army. But a good king, a strong king, 
brings in the soldiers and trains them and equips them. He gives them the, the finest armor and the finest weapons so that they can go forth into battle. And that's the kind of king we see God is. God doesn't call us to hammer out our own weapons and figure out our own armor and try to piecemeal something together so we can keep ourselves safe. Instead, he clothes us with the armor of God and he gives us the sword. He gives us his word. He gives us the best thing that we can use and what we need. What is, what is sufficient to see those we love saved, is sufficient to see our own souls saved, sufficient to help us grow in our faith. We have everything we need in the Bible, and we should consider that an honor. Remember that, that last verse in Psalm 149, to execute on the judgment written, this is the honor for all the godly ones. What is the honor for all the godly ones? To take up the sword that God has given you. Your highest honor is to wield the sword that God has put into your hands. He has freely given you the greatest weapon of all time, the greatest tool of all time, the only, your only hope of restoration. And there should be a joy and an excitement in knowing that we get to, to handle the Bible, that we get to, to read the truths that God has preserved for us in scriptures, and that this is what we go forth at. It's not how smart am I and how well I can logic and puzzle together truth or you know, try to use science to figure out how things happen. It's that we understand we know what God has given us, and what he's given us is sufficient for, script, for our lives, for how we live, for how we are rescued and made right with God. And then from that position, we can begin to explore the natural world and live before God humbly and do all of these other things. But we st our starting point is always from the scriptures, from realizing that God has given us what we need most. He knows us, he created us, and the weapon that he has put into our hand, the weapon that he wields both in judgment on the nations and peoples who turn away from him, and the, the weapon that he uses against the shepherd to rescue the people that he has made his own in saving us, that is the weapon that he now places in our hands. And we have all of the equipment we have in order to go forth in the Great Commission. So our command to go to the, make disciples to the nation, we go to the, make disciples of the nations and we, we seek to, to, to baptize and to teach, not trying to figure it out ourselves, but wielding the sword and the honor that we have been given. We have the greatest weapon ever given to us. And it's, it's not up to us to try to come up with something better or to modify or to go beyond it. It's, it's our high honor to wield it. So as, as we think through what we're worshiping, as we think through our posture and, and how we approach God in worship, let's give thanks that he has given us his word. He has given us his sword so that we can worship God knowing Jesus accurately, knowing how our salvation is assured in, 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 in the shepherd being struck down and finding honor in what God has given us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a moment of, of silent reflection. And then we'll sing together, worshiping God, sharing together this wonderful truth that we can stand before God's throne, knowing that he has equipped us, and that it is, it is the shepherd who was struck down and not us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your wonderful gifts. Thank you that you did not leave us alone, that you did not just bring the sword down on our head for judgment, but that you struck down your son so that we could be made right with God. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you that he has provided our means of salvation. Thank you that you do not just save us to, you know, to collect us, but you have saved us to put us on a mission 
to use us, to equip us with your word so that we can go forth and share the gospel with others, that we can encourage and love and care for other people, that we can forgive as we've been forgiven, that we can hope even in times of refining fire. God, refine us in your fire. Help us through the trials and difficulties of our lives. Help us to love one another and to find unity. In the blessed name of Jesus we pray, amen.